Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host Morgan Davies. Hello. This week we're discussing a beloved classic of Australian cinema, Baz Luhrmann's debut film, Strictly Ballroom. The film stars Paul Mercurio as an accomplished ballroom dancer who scandalises his mother and the Australian ballroom dancing establishment by trying out his own moves in competition. And it co-stars Tara Maurice as an awkward young woman who turns out to be his perfect partner. Thank you so much to listener Adriana for requesting this movie, uh, which was a delight. I had already seen it many years ago, but couldn't really remember apart from finding it very fun. And I was happy to discover that it still is. Um, this was kind of the, the breakout movie for Baz Luhrmann's career of extremely glitzy movies. And it's definitely one of his best, I think. Yeah, I had never seen this. This is the only Baz Luhrmann film I had not seen except for Australia. Which I was about I once... to say, I would be astonished if you'd seen Australia. Well, <laughs> I tried to watch it once because I was going to reference it in something I was writing. And I stopped 20 minutes in because it was so appalling that I was like, I can't endure this. And it's like three hours long. And I just thought, you know what? Life is too short. Last year, there was this news where it was like, oh, they're going to release an extended cut, like the Snyder cut, the Baz Luhrmann cut of this movie that was going to be like a six-hour miniseries. And I was like, from what I've heard of this film, that's not going to make it better. (laughs) Horrifying concept. But it was interesting when I was, I haven't watched a Baz Luhrmann film in a while. And when we got this request, I was like, you know, I think I've seen basically all of his movies and there really are not very many of them. Um, This is the debut, as you mentioned, And then Romeo and Juliet was the really huge sort of international breakout after this. And then it's Moulin Rouge and Australia and The Great Gatsby. And he had a television show briefly on Netflix called The Get Down. But he really has not been that prolific. And I'm sure that's largely to do with the fact that he makes these really elaborate and expensive movies. This, of course, is is pretty elaborate, but it's not expensive, which we'll talk about. But um, he's this pretty influential figure, I think, with a really distinct aesthetic, but he's not very prolific. And it was really interesting to me to watch this movie as someone who watched Moulin Rouge at a very formative age, and to see his style kind of beginning to come into being. I I found it really fascinating. And the movie is just totally delightful. It's just so, so charming. Uh, It's clearly a bit rough around the edges. And really confident. You know, yeah. Also makes sense that it's something that people have come back to time and time again over the almost 30 years since it's come out. Like it just has a sort of emotional quality to it that it's still really affecting. So I had a great time watching this and I'm really glad I finally, finally saw it. But why don't we start with a little bit of background on how it came into being? Because the story is pretty interesting. Do you want to give a little bit of background on Lerman? Yeah, sure. So he kind of started out Well, in terms of his own background, he was drawing from his experience ballroom dancing because he started dancing as a little kid, just like the protagonist of this movie. Uh, But he also, as an adult, like his career was in theatre and he made a stage show of Strictly Ballroom, which kind of evolved through various different iterations, collaborating with other people um, in the Australian theatre scene. And he also did this very kind of acclaimed reimagining of La Boheme. And this movie obviously kind of it's the film version of his stage show and it's actually really interesting because like a lot of the time when you see stuff that's kind of directly adapted from stage to screen it's very static and that even includes stuff that's sort of musicals because it's often like oh we just want to translate what happens in the play 
to a movie, but he's clearly having a lot of fun with like camera work. And there's this element that is only there for like the first half of the film where there's just sort of mockumentary segments for no real reason. And I'd completely forgotten this element, but I was like, this is quite funny. Like it's weird. And it also just like vanishes because it's not necessary anymore. And it was like, okay, well, an idiosyncrasy that you're enjoying here. But yeah, he clearly has a genuine passion for, you know, choreography and music choices and a lot of enthusiasm, which is what you need for a movie like this, which is all about enthusiasm and being corny. Corny is a good word. I mean, camp also would be one word that you could use. (laughs) I mean, watching Um, this, I was like, 90s Australian independent cinema, certainly there was a specific vibe that was going on with a lot of films at this point, because like the three that were really big breakouts are this, Muriel's Wedding, and Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, which are all incredible. We did an episode of Muriel's Wedding a couple years ago. And those three are like all extremely, like overtly camp. And they have a particular aesthetic that's sort of like exaggerating 90s Australian working class pop culture in a really fun and self-aware way. And there were a lot of other sort of like light comedies coming out of Australia at this point as well. Well, what's particularly interesting about this movie and that distinguishes it a bit from those other two, although I obviously was also thinking about them and I think they do have a lot in common, is that it's not like all three of those movies are exaggerated in certain ways. Muriel's Wedding is kind of emotionally exaggerated and then Priscilla, Queen of the Desert has the kind of aesthetic largeness because it's about drag queens. But this movie, like most of Buzz Lerman's movies... It's almost like an 18th century French theater thing going on, right? Where <laughs> I mean, it's, it's manic. Like a, it's very manic. Yeah. And at once, it is really emotionally sincere. Like, the characters are not... Or, like, the main characters, I should say. There's nothing ironic about them. Like, Scott, this young man who just wants to dance his own steps. <laughs> like, it's just... There's nothing false about that. It's really pure... On the other hand, there's this sort of heightened performative quality to the whole thing that makes it disconnected from how anyone behaves in real life at all. As compared to something like Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, where obviously there's sort of situational extremity to that movie. Like they're driving through the outback in this like outrageous bus but the performances are pretty naturalistic, right? Like, they're playing real people. Whereas this movie is on another plane of existence. And, like, there's real emotion in it, which I think is why people love the movie so much and have watched it over and over again, because it's, like, touching something real in them. But it also is just so extreme in a way that, like, Moulin Rouge is too, right? And, like, Romeo and Juliet makes such perfect sense for the person who made this movie because, obviously, the reason Shakespeare survived so long is that those plays really do say something real about the human condition, but also they're through this language that's not how anybody speaks, you know, now or ever, right? So it's the balance of those two things that I think is really interesting. And I found it interview with Buzz Lerman from a few years ago in The Guardian where he talked about a bunch of the different things he's done over the years and was discussing the origins of this movie in terms of the stage show and the description of like what this thing was like 
in its, its various amazing. iterations. amazing. I was like, I want to hear some of these. <laughs> I wish I could see it. <laughs> it sounds like it was a pretty big deal. And as you say, the version of La Boheme was also, I think that went to Europe. But the Strictly Ballroom one, so the quote from the article is, there were several iterations of Strictly Ballroom, including a Brechtian one, punctuated by speeches from Reagan and Thatcher. And Lerman says, what I was trying to do in my ham-fisted way was connect the idea that whether it's ballroom dancing or politics, there will always be some carnival barker saying there's only one way to cha-cha-cha. Which, like, what a quote. (laughs) (laughs) But I think even in that quote, you kind of get a level of, like, self-awareness from him where, like, he knows it's ham-fisted, right? And, like, that obviously isn't what wound up in the final movie. But, like, he's completely aware that what he's doing is kind of too much, but that's what works about it. Yeah, I mean, the only thing he's done which wasn't a success is Australia. And all of the criticism was like, he's tried to be really serious. This film's quite racist. He doesn't understand the politics of what he's talking about. Whereas the other stuff he does is entertainment with very, very kind of self-aware emotional depth and like intensity, you know? I mean, I think that his Gatsby is bad. I've not seen that, so I cannot judge. Yeah, it's not good. It's not like the worst movie I've ever seen. That is a book that is unadaptable. I mean, it's a puzzling choice to have direct yeah. it. It's definitely uh, one where it's like, did you did you perhaps have a different vision of what this book was about? <laughs> yeah, but like the other famous version of that is from the 70s starring... Robert Redford. Yeah, which is, is hilarious because everyone looks visually as if they are from the 70s. The costumes yes. are all by Ralph Lauren. <laughs> yeah, it's really funny. But like, theoretically, he's perfect casting for that role. And the movie completely doesn't work. Like, that book is one of the best books ever written. And it just, like, the plot, in theory, should work for a movie. Like, a lot of stuff happens, but it just doesn't. It can't, it can't be done. I don't. Yeah, I mean, it's done. a narrative that makes sense and is about hot people going to parties. And yet. <laughs> it, yeah, it's not going to work. I have not seen his Netflix show, which, which people loved. It was a classic Netflix situation where like they dropped it all at once and then there wasn't a second season. So I just never got around to it. But um, his three 90s slash early 2000s films, which get called the Red Curtain Trilogy, which is this and Romeo and Juliet and Moulin Rouge, because they all have these kind of like theatrical stagey stuff going on and there's lots of red all over them I think are all like incredible god I loved Miller Rouge so much because that came out when we were 12 and at that age I had not listened to much classic pop music so I wasn't really aware it was a jukebox musical and I was like god these songs are all bangers Oh, I exactly. I think I saw it when I was 14. I definitely did not see it in the theater. I think I saw it at a sleepover. And we were all just like, this is amazing. And I got the soundtrack. And I mean, I just listened to that obsessively. And I think we were exactly the age where that movie... I mean, obviously, people older and younger also love it. But like, we were the perfect age for that movie to have a massive effect. And... Again, that film, which we should definitely do an episode about at some point, I love it so much, but it's way more kind of professional and glitzy in terms of the mise-en-scene. Like, he just has so much more money and more experience by that point, which makes sense. But it really fits to the setting, right? Like, it's Because with this film, it doesn't feel like they're kind of stretching a low budget to do something that's outside of their wheelhouse. Like, Moulin Rouge is a film that requires, like, a bajillion dollars. This movie is kind of intentionally set 
in a very cheap location because like the main characters are this working class family who run a ballroom dance studio and are completely obsessed like their lives are religiously centered around this event which is the pan-pacific latin ballroom dancing competition which is sort of clearly a local amateur contest which is part of the key tragic comedy of the entire story because very realistically even though it is absurdly over the top these people are just like basically almost at the point of assassinating each other over this hobby which doesn't matter and none of them are actually enjoying anymore which is such a true piece of observational comedy because people are like that (laughs) yeah this is like if you made a musical about people having like massive international flame wars over supernatural shipping like that would be the equivalent (laughs) yes ebert's review of this movie is really good and spot on and he starts off by being like you, you're almost disoriented when the movie starts because, like, surely no one behaves this way, but they actually do. And there's a quote from later on where he writes, In one sense, the characters care about nothing but ballroom dancing. They eat, drink, and sleep it and talk of nothing else. Their costumes alone are a tip-off that they've had no contact with the real world for years. Yet in another sense, ballroom dancing is simply the strategy they use to hold the world at bay. They are profoundly frightened of change and have created an insular little world with rigid rules and traditions. Here they can be in control as the larger world goes haywire. Which I think is almost giving too much credit to like the larger politics of this film. Yeah, I wouldn't say the world exists outside of the small ballroom dancing community of this film. (laughs) (laughs) But I thought that was an interesting way to think about it. To me, it feels more like he's using this absurd little corner of existence, which is simultaneously, as I keep saying, sort of heightened beyond the way that reality ever works. And also like a perfect setting for that because like the costumes and the makeup, which is part of what Ebert's referencing here, are like totally ludicrous, but not actually unrealistic. Because if you know anything about ballroom dancing... Which, like, I'm not an expert at all, but, like, I have seen pictures. Like, that's what they look like. Like, this is pretty standard. So it contributes to his desire to have this feeling of, like, excess, right? And kind of unreality. But there's kind of a political, almost, like, allegorical level on top of it, which obviously ties back to the version of this where there were, like, Reagan and Thatcher quotes being read. Yeah. And it's also definitely about sort of generation gaps and youthfulness and stuff because all of the older characters are authority figures in this ballroom dancing scene or one of the main character's parents and their entire lives have been taken over by the rules of this contest and some of them are really corrupt and they're all just really emotionally fucked up because they're just obsessed with the (laughs) the religious mindset and then the main guy is, you know, he just, he wants to make up his own steps, which is a huge scandal. And then you get into this very straightforward musical comedy romance with the Ugly Duckling character played by Tara Maurice, who is also tremendous. It's a really good pairing of characters because it's like a very obvious trope. You have compared it to Dirty Dancing, which I've not seen, but we should definitely talk about. There's dozens and dozens of movies and love stories along these lines, but they still manage to make those two main people distinctive enough that it really, really works. Like Paul Mercurio's character, um, he's very kind of creatively confident in himself, but you can kind of tell that he's very young 
in the scenes with his parents, he's acting really teenagery. He doesn't really know what he's doing apart from he wants to have more creative freedom. And then Tara Maurice's character, like I think in a lot of other movies of this type, you would have her be a lot less self-confident. But even though the movie is like, oh, she's unattractive and frumpy and lonely and weird, she is. She has the confidence to approach him. And she's the one who's like, I understand you creatively and I want to kind of help you take the ballroom dance world by storm and winning isn't the most important thing. You know, all those, all those corny sentiments that we appreciate so much. And her self-esteem only really becomes a problem when the other women are trying to put her down and curtail her rebelliousness. Yes, which feels very real to me. That kind of catty female behavior being the thing that can be really damaging. And in this community specifically, because it's one of these things like professional figure skating or gymnastics where the whole thing is just geared towards this cartoonish level of hyper-femininity. And there's a really great detail with the main guy's mother, who is a former ballroom dance champion and also kind of the the teacher and owner of this dance studio and she is like always wearing this pancake makeup and she also is constantly smiling and whenever she's having these really genuine moments of absurd but deep emotional distress either she or her partner the co-owner of the dance studio will like tell her to keep herself grinning like all these really false smiles that the women have to do while ballroom dancing and it was just such a good detail yeah, I mean, that woman is awful. But in those moments, as you say, you're just like, oh, this is really bad. <laughs> like, this is just really dysfunctional. and like, not good. I mean, we should say briefly about the casting before we get more into the plot. I think both those young actors do just like a great job. Paul Mercurio was a trained ballet dancer, and this was his first acting role. And it's not like the best acting I've ever seen in my life, but I certainly wasn't thinking about that. Like he's totally convincing. I mean, in terms he's of what very cute. He's sincere. Do. He's a wonderful dancer. The character yeah. is not that complex. Love him. Exactly. It it totally works because he was trained in ballet. Apparently, I was watching some interviews. He had a fair amount of trouble adjusting to the style that was required for the movie because it's ballroom dance, which I thought was interesting. But he does a great job. And then Tara Maurice plays Fran, his partner, was a trained actor. This was her first film role, but she had a pretty decent stage career before this point and had originated the role on stage. And in some of the retrospective interviews that I was watching, the like National Archive of Australia put together this big online exhibition for the 25th anniversary a few years ago. And they had interviewed both of them. And she had said like, she felt really protective of that character because she'd played her on stage and was like desperate to get cast in the film, which obviously she was. And I think she is great in the movie. Like, I just think her performance is really good. But I think part of what works about the sort of like ugly duckling thing that's going on with her, which is totally a cliche that we've seen a thousand times. She has really bad skin at the beginning and she's wearing these huge unflattering glasses is that on the one hand, they actually do things like have her have bad skin, which like you never see in a movie, (laughs) even in the like ugly duckling phase, right? Like no one ever has zits. So I kind of appreciated that. And then also once they've like transformed her into like being more pretty, she's obviously a very pretty woman, 
but she still is wearing kind of like a normal dress. And like basically just looks like a normal pretty person. And yeah, not she like looks, they both basically look regular. Like everyone yes. in this movie looks normal. And with her especially, it's just really pleasant because also her makeover is a gradual thing that happens over the course of the movie. But like you said, her clothes are still normal. And also they like don't really go overboard. It's like basically she wears tighter clothes. She gains more confidence in her body because she's dancing with a cool guy and falling in love with him. She gets better skincare. And that's pretty much it. Like she doesn't wear a ton of makeup or anything. Her hair is like still kind of frizzy. She looks normal. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not like an Anne Hathaway in the Princess Diaries thing where like it's like a totally different person like she does look better but it's not so dramatic that it's kind of outrageous and clearly like a movie thing right and compared to the other women who are in this ballroom dancing competition who are you know peroxide blonde hair and all of this makeup on 90s like blue eyeshadow and of course it's all ballroom dance stuff so it's in these neon colors and they're all wearing these tremendous costumes uh the costumes in this are by angus strathy who's an australian costume designer he worked with uh baz lerman in the stage production and they're kind of old pals so he did moulin rouge that's like his biggest thing but he has since then become a prolific designer and he obviously uh, knew precisely what the job was here yes (laughs) I mean, you just look at the, they're like not even dresses for the most part. It's like yeah. feathers. It's mostly like, ruffles. It's like they've found yeah. different ways to attach ruffles to a woman. <laughs> and it just seems so uncomfortable. And I know that that's how it works, but like, oh my God. But I mean, all the dancers are obviously, like the dancing is very impressive from everybody. And in fact, the big dance sequences, especially at the end, they shot at the actual the big ballroom dancing competition. I was wondering, because it does look like that. I think probably all the dancers who you're seeing in like a major way in the movie are actors, but like the people in the audience were ballroom dancers because they didn't have money for to hire hundreds and hundreds of extras. And Tara Maurice was saying that like the first thing they shot was the big dance sequence at the end of the movie. And she was unbelievably nervous because the people watching her were like professional ballroom dancers. And she is obviously not. But yeah, we should definitely talk about how this is part of like a sort of mini wave of dance movies from this sort of general period. The one that I was seeing it compared to in sort of reviews and then retrospective coverage was more Saturday Night Fever, which I have seen, but like 15 years ago. And I remember virtually nothing about it. But Dirty Dancing had come out only five years before this. And obviously the stage show had been going on. Like this was a long gestating project. But I feel like it must have been influenced on some level by Dirty Dancing. Because Dirty Dancing has all of this kind of like class conflict going on, which is not a part of this movie at all. And... It's way more kind of naturalistic and straightforward than this, which, as we keep saying, has this sort of like heightened quality. But certain major plot points in terms of like the really professional male dancer teaching a woman who doesn't really know what she's doing so that they can compete in a major championship. And then like the way the movie ends is basically the same in both cases. 
which I just thought was notable. And then particularly because the kind of tone of each movie is so different, but then they have these plot similarities. I, I thought that was really interesting. And clearly people were into this kind of film at the time because they both made a ton of money. And indeed still are, because people are still fucking watching this movie in drool. Right. Even though it stars no one famous. Well, that was part of what's interesting, right? Like, Dirty Dancing is still a huge, sort of, like, beloved movie that people watch all the time. But, like, it's got Patrick Swayze in it. And, like, he's still a very famous figure, right? And, like, I've never heard of either of these people. And this is by far the thing that they're most known for. Which is pretty interesting, as we said, they do a great job, but this clearly is, was the sort of high point of their career in terms of public recognition. People love to watch dancing. Yeah. Which is kind of one of the crucial problems with a lot of modern musicals, which do not let you watch the dancing. Correct. Yes. I mean, it was kind of baffling to me watching this. Like, obviously the emotional elements and the romance are a huge part of the reason why it's still so compelling to people but the dancing is fantastic and he in particular because he's a professional or was a professional dancer like he's fantastic in this movie and it's shot really really well like Baz Luhrmann there are some of the dancing scenes like he does a lot of sort of frantic cutting but a lot of them he is smart enough to sort of stay far enough away from them that you get to see the whole body and that's what's appealing about watching this stuff right yeah, and you get these fantastic contrasts between the really intensive, absurd, kind of almost horrifying indoor ballroom scenes where they're competing and they're wearing these silly costumes, and then the really kind of sincere, sexy moments where they're learning to dance together. And like the really famous one is when they're dancing on the rooftop together and there's this big Coca-Cola sign behind them. <laughs> and then like the camera kind of pans down and you see the main character's father dancing alone in the dance studio because like he also wants to express himself but he's this henpecked husband his wife is in charge of everything and the background of him we find out is that like back in the day he also tried to dance his own steps but was shut down so <laughs> again the fact that all of their lives are just like being channeled through yes this tiny bar dance competition is is very funny in terms of the dancing, we should also say that a lot of what winds up happening with with the way they're dancing is sort of transformed by the fact that her family is Spanish and they do a lot of flamenco dancing. I think there are definitely some like cultural stereotypes about Spanish people in this movie. Not in like a terrible way. It was just kind of funny to me. Like her. I dad mean, it's is it's a very, real kind like, of meeting in the sense that it's all stereotypes of Australian people too. <laughs> This is true. At first, her dad seems, like, really overbearing and controlling, and then you find out he just is, like, passionate about flamenco. Yeah, he's like, you have to you have to prove yourself that you're worthy to be my daughter's dance partner by beating me in a flamenco duel. <laughs> yeah, incredible stuff. I, I mean, again, the cultural stuff I do not think is particularly, like, deep, but in terms of, like, melding the two styles of dance, like... They're doing all this flamenco stuff kind of on their own and with her family. And then the stuff in the studio is all this much more strict ballroom dancing. And they kind of come up with their own dance that is combining those two styles. I think it's really just fun to watch in terms of, like, it's just fun to watch dancing, as you said. And it 
choreographed really well, so it's really pleasurable. And there's like a theatrical quality to what they wind up performing in terms of having a sort of, it's like they're like doing a matador thing. And so there's like a kind of narrative to to the dance that you don't get from just the ballroom dancing that you see in competition, right? Which of course is part of what's freaking out the old fogies is that they don't they don't want change. We should probably talk about all of the like allegorical stuff going on with that structure and the the dance people and with Scott because obviously this is a movie that's about more than just ballroom dancing. The thing that was the most interesting to me and that has sort of connected to some of the stuff we've been saying recently about some mainstream movies and TV shows that aren't so interesting is that especially the first half of the movie, I would say, but really throughout the whole thing, there's a lot in this movie that is basically telling a story that's a queer allegory about this young man. He just wants to be different. He wants to do his own thing. And they all like lose their fucking minds, right? But it's told through a heterosexual romance. And this is like a long tradition. This is many, many films and books and what have you have done this. But I thought this was like a really clear version of that trope. And I just found it so much more kind of interesting to think about and like emotionally compelling than a lot of other recent media where you just have like the one sentence, right, about someone being gay or bisexual or, or what have you. Yeah. And it's also different from sort of, if you look at um, Moulin Rouge, like Moulin Rouge is a straight up and down forbidden romance narrative. And there is not really any queer subtext to that that I recall in terms of the no, main story. I don't think so. Um, and I think people often kind of get their wires crossed in terms of those two being separate things. And yeah, I do agree. Like this one definitely has a queer subtext. And that also kind of plays into the fact that it is very overtly camp. Yeah, the camp thing is interesting, right? Because I think the comment you make about the kind of wires getting crossed vis-a-vis Moulin Rouge is connected to the camp thing, right? Because that movie is definitely camp. Like, it's so much and so over the top. But those two things can be separated. And I haven't seen that movie in a long time, but I agree that, like, I don't think that's really what's going on in that movie in terms of the plot. Like, it's just about these two people who are like madly in love with each other. But in this movie, there's so much about the like importance of conforming to the norm. Yeah, all these authority figures who are like conspiring and emotionally manipulating this young man to do precisely what they want because it's what they think society should be like and also they can make money out of it and they want to control his love life as well. Yes, and you have the character of his father, who is this, like, miserable middle-aged man who's been suffering in this marriage to this awful woman. They don't go into it. It's not that the movie suggests directly that it's a sham, but, like, what is, what is he getting out of this, right? Like, it's just yeah. totally I mean, he's awful. trapped and bullied, and what she gets is a successful dance studio. Right. And he is the forerunner of Scott in, the, like he wanted to kind of do his own creative thing and they shut him down. And his reward for that was getting this like totally loveless marriage. And like, obviously I have no idea what Baz Luhrmann wanted to convey with this movie, but obviously at this point in Hollywood or even sort of like these indie movies in Australia, it's way easier to tell a story about a young man and a young woman falling in love together. And so the 
way out for him instead of it being another man. It is this woman who is kind of different and unusual in various ways in that she's kind of awkward. Like she's very good looking, but she's not like conventionally attractive in the sense that she doesn't look like a movie star exactly. And she has like zits and stuff. And she just kind of like marches to the beat of her own drum because she also has ideas about how she wants to dance that are like, she's made stuff up herself that's coming from the flamenco stuff. So the movie is all about them kind of like finding their like voice in quotes, right? In terms of how they want to dance together. And that romance is really compelling in terms of those two characters. Like you want them to get together and it feels real and right. But also under the surface, there's all of this other subtext. And both of those things can kind of exist in one movie in a way that I think is really effective in this film and interesting to think about. Indeed. Yeah. Is there anything else we want to say about the plot or the tech stuff before we get into the release and reception of the movie, which was quite, because it was quite a phenomenon. Should we talk about the end or if we kind of covered that implicitly already? I think we've covered as much as we need to about the end. I mean, you can all guess if you haven't seen <laughs> basically what happened. Like, you can is- you can plot like a chart of what happens in yeah. this film without having seen <laughs> the film beforehand. And that's perfectly acceptable because watching this movie, or rather literally re-watching this movie, I was like, God, I'm so tense. What's going to happen with everyone's relationships? I hope this competition goes okay. It's like, spoiler alert, it's going to go okay. <laughs> oh, I do want to make one comment. The like head guy of the like dancing organization Barry Fife who's played by Bill Hunter it is unnerving how much he looks like Donald Trump which obviously not intentional and like yeah it's, it's a, a talk- type because he's you know he's got this fake tan yeah. he's got a kind of yellowish toupee, toupee. and he's quite jolly <laughs> and he's playing this kind of like authoritarian like big talking guy like Lerman talks about this in that Guardian interview he's like yeah isn't it funny how that worked out he was like, all my movies are prophetic. <laughs> yeah, he's like pinpointed a specific kind of just like low rent sleaze bag showman. Yeah. yeah. Um, and like, of course, no one was thinking about that when they made this movie, but it, it's just kind of like, it wasn't like I was thinking about it 100% of the time, but it's hard not to be like, oh, there he is watching the film now. Which, so he kind of accidentally wound up sneaking in a little bit of that Reagan and Thatcher stuff, you know, 30 <laughs> years later in an indirect way. He was, Bill Hunter, who's a great actor and is very good playing a scumbag in this movie, was one of the only name actors in the movie. He was in, he had been in Gallipoli, and then he was, he plays Muriel's dad, another piece of shit, in Muriel's wedding. And part of the sort of struggle of getting the financing and stuff for the movie is that the young actors were nobodies. And they made it for really, like, a shoestring. But then, leading us into our next topic, it was a huge, huge hit. So it played at the Uncertain Regard section of Cannes, which, for those of you who don't know, it's not the main competition. It's, like, one tier down, but it's still very prestigious. And it got very positive reviews and subsequently was nominated for the various tech things, the BAFTAs, and then the Golden Globe for a musical or comedy. And it's still number 10 on the list of the highest grossing Australian films of all time, which is pretty unbelievable. It made much less money than everything else on that list, but all the other movies 
are co-productions with America and or the United Kingdom. So, like, several of Baz Luhrmann's other movies are on there, but it's stuff like The Great Gatsby, which, like, obviously he's an Australian director, but I don't think of that as an Australian movie. Yeah. I would say Mad Max is an Australian movie. Mad Max Fury Road, not an Australian movie. Yeah. And it's just, like, really big films on that list. And then way down at number 10, you got Strictly Ballroom, which made $80 million on a $3 million budget worldwide which is like i mean it's amazing so it really it did very well i kind of feel like like i was saying about how everyone loves to watch dancing like low budget horror is one of the best ways to i mean i say best it's not like a money spinner but like there's a lot of low budget horror movies that get huge because you can make a great horror movie on a low budget and if you have a really fantastic musical like this or the rocky horror or like priscilla would be a kind of similar example those movies will sell and sell because people love to watch a feel-good movie where people sing and or dance in bright colours. Yeah. I mean, I think part of the key to both those things is that you need, obviously, performers, especially... I mean, having good performers in any movie is important, but especially you have to have great dancers, right? Yeah, I mean, this is the opposite of La La Land, which has famous people, a lot of marketing (laughs) budget, and terrible singing and dancing, and an awful concept. Yeah. But for both low-budget horror and this kind of, like, little indie movie with great dancing, like, you just have to have a great director, right? Because that's what's going to make a movie like that hit and sort of become a phenomenon, is that it actually just has to be good. And we've seen horror become kind of a thing that people are willing to invest their money in because they've, they've seen that that can be a moneymaker, and it would be great if people kind of figured that out with the musical dancing side, because in this case, like Bas Lerman, of course, went on to be this huge figure. But um, you can see the skill in this movie, even if it's not totally fully realized yet. And we complain all the time about these musicals that aren't directed well. But like, I refuse to believe that there aren't people out there who could do it. So... Well, I Where's think that's, if Lerman, anything, right? it's, it's like, it's the problem is Baz Luhrmann, right? Because in the past few years, there's definitely been more musicals getting made, including quite a lot of biopic musicals, like the Elton John movie, which is actually fantastic, but all the rest are garbage. And it's really obvious that, like, the studios have figured out that this is going to make a lot of money, like that film where Hugh Jackman is a con artist. Uh, (laughs) And the movies aren't good, but it's precisely the same model as the sort of Disney live-action adaptations, where they hire someone who's basically a workhorse and can work to order and make something that is really expensive and indeed has a lot of CGI and they can market with big stars but isn't high quality and doesn't have particularly interesting directorial vision. And with Baz Luhrmann, he evidently is a control freak, you know, not in a bad way, but like he is really has his fingers in all parts of the creative endeavour here. He has a really specific even like cinematography style and you know he's married to his costume designer <laughs> like right, like yeah. he is he's very involved and that isn't something that flies with the stuff that's getting made by the big studios and i don't think he's really interested in making a direct adaptation which is probably why he didn't end up doing something like Les Mis because he wants to yeah. put more of his own stamp on it well he's doing an elvis movie right now so that will be an experience for all of us Whenever yeah, I read out. an interview where he was like, oh yeah, the two 
The two things I'm considering are an Elvis movie and something which he described as a quote-unquote chinese Western. And I was like, don't do whatever that is. Yeah. Well, he's done <laughs> the Elvis movie. Definitely that do the Elvis better. one instead. Yeah, yeah. Maybe some executive actually made a correct decision for once yeah. in the history like, of Hollywood. Not it was qualified. Like, no. <laughs> oh, God. Anyway, thank you again to Adriana for sponsoring this episode. This was so much fun. Um, if you haven't seen this movie, save it for a night where you just need to pick me up because it is totally delightful. Next week, we will be doing another Patreon request uh we're gonna be watching a todd haynes film very exciting because we both love todd haynes uh we're gonna be watching far from heaven which is fantastic i'm looking forward to it this is one i've not seen so oh god it's so great it stars uh julianne moore and dennis quaid and um it is a riff on douglas sirk movies uh it's about a housewife in the 50s she finds out her husband is gay she winds up having there's some romantic situation with a black man so he's he's drawing on two specific Cirque movies dealing with both race and sexuality and it is just oh my god it's so great so I'm really looking forward to re-watching this one Julian Moore obviously always incredible Todd Haynes also always incredible so that will be really interesting to talk about I also recommend checking out some Douglas Turk if you've never seen any uh, to the listeners. He was he was fascinating. So that will be next week. Thank you, as always, to everyone for listening. If you would like to sponsor an episode of your own, you may do that at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor, and you can find me on YouTube at Behind the Seams. And you can find me at Twitter and Letterboxd at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at Overinvested Pod. Our Tumblr is Overinvested Podcast. And our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.